And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, as you probably are well aware, I am fascinated, fascinated, I tell you, by the history of Walt Disney World and some of the backstory and some of the things that happened to bring Walt Disney World to Orlando. And every once in a while, I'll read an article or catch a story about Walt Disney World and its history that I think is just really amazing. And I like to present those stories and talk about those stories when they come up. So I happened upon a story Uh, And this is actually an article that appeared in the Florida State University Law Review, of all places. Now for reference, let me just tell you the Florida State University Law Review is a flagship journal at the Florida State Law at the Florida State University up in Tallahassee. The members of the Florida State University Law Review publish the journal four times a year. Uh, Each issue contains scholarly articles authored by judges, scholars, clerks, attorneys, and law students from around the globe. The review is staffed and edited by students of Florida State Law. So what I'd like to do is present to you an article that appeared back in uh, 2009, in the winter of 2009, in uh, volume 36 of the Law Journal. Now I'm going to read to you from this particular article. You can find the full text of the article in a link on my show notes page over at DisneyWorldPodcast.net. So the article is titled, Merging Public and Private Governance, How Disney's Reedy Creek Improvement District Reimagined the Traditional Division of Local Regulatory Powers. And it's from Chad D. Emerson who's an associate professor of law at the Faulkner University Thomas Goods Jones School of Law. He thanks his research assistant, Davey Hay, for the support with this article, as well as Ray Maxwell, who serves as the lead administrator for the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Now, because this is a peer-reviewed journal, there are a lot of reference notes in here. So if you go to the show notes page and you click on the article, you'll see all of the reference material, where this information comes from. I'm not going to cite it here specifically. I just want to provide the article to you. But uh, please feel free to go back and check the reference material because, because that, in and of itself, is really pretty interesting. On November 22, 1963, one airplane flight changed the course of Central Florida, and in many ways, the entire nation. Aboard the plane was Walter Elias Disney, the creative genius who had ushered in a new era of American entertainment through his animated feature and Disneyland theme park in Anaheim, California. From his window seat, Disney looked down on an acreage of undeveloped land, including rural swampland and citrus groves, a physical environment that hardly seemed ripe for what would soon become one of the largest private developments in the United States. Yet, as was his skill, Disney saw an opportunity where others did not. So much so that a small team of Disney confidants soon began acquiring 27,000 of these isolated acres for what would ultimately become the iconic Walt Disney World Resort. This article analyzes the legal and regulatory events that enabled Disney's vision to become reality. This series of events uniquely melded public governance with private enterprise to create a system designed to facilitate Disney's massive project without resorting to a large public investment. Indeed, when the Florida legislature created the Reedy Creek Improvement District, the district or Reedy Creek or Improvement District, 
It empowered the district with authority, typically reserved for municipal and county governments. The legislature accomplished this through the use of a special district. While Reedy Creek was certainly not the first special district, Disney's vision was unique in the broad scope of its authority. This is a lesson in the story of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Historically, most regulatory functions in this country have been divided among federal, state, and local governments. However, since the World War II era, another form of government, the special district, has grown increasingly popular. Special districts are distinguished from more conventional forms of government in that they typically serve a limited purpose, compared with the general purpose of states, cities, and counties, and the like. The limited distinction refers to the fact that most special districts are established with the narrower scope of regulatory authority than conventional forms of government. By the 1950s, another shift occurred as the chief proponent of special districts began to shift from national leaders to state and local executives and private entrepreneurs. This represented a return to the 19th century trend where states viewed special districts and their financing authority as a tool for large infrastructure projects. Former New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller represented a prime example of this shift. During his term from 1959 to 1974, the governor established over 20 special district-type entities. For historical context, the Census Bureau notes that the number of special districts uh, governments reported in 2002 was almost three times the number of special districts governments reported in 1952. That means that as time goes by, the number of total special districts continues to creep near the total of conventional local forms of government. This trend indicates that the interest in this special form is increasing as an alternative approach to governance. One likely reason for this is the flexibility the special districts offer in their legal and regulatory operations. A common feature among all these special districts is their independence from existing forms of government. As one commentator has explained, this means that the parent government neither serves as nor appoints the special district's governing board. As a result, special districts' work plans and budgets are not subject to the approval of their local governments. This autonomy and actual legislative capacity elevates a special district from merely an advisory board, such as the Board of Zoning Adjustment, to the level of parent government, such as a city council, serving as an actual legislative capacity. Interestingly, though, while the Reedy Creek Improvement District possesses broad powers, the majority of special districts are single-purpose in nature. The U.S. Census Bureau compiled a list of these limited functions with activities such as fire protection, water service, waste management, natural resource management, and power generation representing the typical examples. This finding is significant in terms of the Reedy Creek constituting an innovative form of special district. In particular, the Reedy Creek Improvement District's innovation is that, while acting as a special, a special district, it eschews the typical singular nature and, and instead compiles many of these separate functions into a larger whole. The result is a special district with broad and diverse set of powers, the exact equation needed to facilitate what would become one of the world's largest private projects, and in doing so, would dramatically alter the face of Florida. As one of the country's most popular tourist destinations, Walt Disney World is known to almost every American vacationer. Yet this famous Orlando area destination has not always been known by that popular moniker. Indeed, before it was Disney World, the project name all alternated among a series of names that seemed more like code words. For instance, as early as 1964, the resort concept was known as Project Winter. This was part of a series of other proposed Disney projects located in St. Louis, Missouri, which was Project Fall, Niagara Falls, New York, which was Project Summer, and Monterey, California, which would be Project Spring. These seasonal projects were part of a wave of proposed Disney projects during the 1960s. While some, like the Riverboat Square, the proposed indoor Disney theme park near the St. Louis waterfront, were located in cold-weather climates, 
From the beginning, the state of Florida was the most likely location for an expansion of the Disney Amusement Park Enterprise. By June of 1965, Disney officials had renamed the proposed resort Project Future. Shortly thereafter, the resort underwent another name change, with the Disney were now referring to it as Project Florida, Project X, and Disneyland East. Ultimately, the company would officially announce the project in November of 1965, with Roy Disney finally settling on the name of Walt Disney World Resort following his brother Walt's death in December of 1966. The story behind the creation of the Disney Corporation's massive eastern resort is more than one of just name changes. The history of the Reedy Creek Improvement District is a tale of unconventional political and regulatory strategies aimed at securing positive results for both public and private interests. One of the earliest indications of Disney's interest in a Florida resort occurred in the late 1950s. Disney commissioned Economics Research Associates, ERA, to conduct a study for the market of an eastern Disneyland, and it was dated June 16, 1959. Soon thereafter, rumors of a potential Disneyland park in Florida began to spread so rampantly that by January of 1962, several officials organized a meeting to brief then-Florida Governor Cecil Ferris concerning the establishment of a Disneyland in the state of Florida. While the 1962 meeting was ultimately canceled, Disney's plan for a Florida resort continued forward. On November 22, 1963, Walt Disney flew over the future Disney World site as part of a larger tour of various Florida properties in contention for the resort. The tour also consisted of stops in St. Louis, Niagara Falls, and Washington, D.C., where the Disney entourage toured potential sites and met with proponents of Disney Project in their areas. It was at the end of this lengthy plane trip after the group had stopped in New Orleans and then began the flight home to California, that Walt Disney announced to those on board the plane that Central Florida appeared to be their location. With Central Florida now the likely location, the company once again hired ERA, this time to research prospective properties for Disney World. One of the primary objectives of this 1964 report was to evaluate in greater detail the location advantages offered by Ocala versus Orlando. The debate between these locations had started two years earlier with another Disney-commissioned ERA report which concluded that the Ocala area was the optimum geographic location for such a project because of the large number of out-of-state visitors that passed through or near the city annually. However, by the time the 1964 report was finished, two new major highways, the interstate between Orlando and Tampa, and the extension of the Florida Turnpike to Orlando, were nearing completion. These new highways meant that Orlando's drive-through exposure could compete with that of Ocala, As a result, the ERA report focused more attention on the Orlando area as it offered a greater potential for the development of the project winner than the Ocala area. Since Orlando has a large, growing, and healthy economic base to help sustain a project of this magnitude. During this time, Thomas DeWolf, a Miami attorney whose firm would serve as a local counsel, surveyed potential locations throughout the state along with others. From the trip, the group would identify four possibilities, Port St. Lucie, New Smyrna, St. Augustine, and the Orlando area. Ultimately, the project winner team concurred with ERA and recommended Orlando. Still, the idea of operating a year-round theme park in Central Florida was not without potential concerns. Issues such as the uh, area's insect problem, hurricane threats, regular thunderstorms, and occasional cold winter days mixed with a consistently hot and humid summer season meant that the area compared much less favorably than the more temperate conditions of Disneyland of Southern California. Yet Disney seemed uh, undeterred and continued forward with Central Florida as the next resort destination. With the location of Project Winter focused on the Orlando vicinity, the ERA team investigated 50 different properties with 25 of those researched in details. 
One of the primary requirements was that the accumulated land comprised between 3,000 and 12,000 acres. This led ERA to exclude many parcels located in western, northwestern, and northern parts of the city, as these areas were dominated by citrus groves, whose value exceeded $4,000 per acre, much too expensive for accumulating such a large amount of land. Fortunately, the study found that the large single-owner landholders uh, and paths of the new highways made the southern part of Orlando the best option for the project. In particular, the report identified nine prospective parcels in this area for development. A 300,000-plus acre uh, parcel controlled by the Mormon Church, an approximately 6,000-acre parcel near East uh, Tohopika Liga Lake, a roughly 3,000-acre parcel owned by the major realty company, one of the largest landholders in Florida, a 4,550-acre parcel known as University Tract due to its proximity to an even larger parcel that Florida State University was considering for a new campus in Orlando, a 6,000-acre parcel known as Highway Hub Tract near the proposed university location, the 6,000-acre Lawson Ranch, the Acorn River Ranch property located 16 miles east of the city, an 8,200-acre area known somewhat cryptically as Parcel 18, and a 12,440-acre parcel known as Expressway Tract. The 1964 ERA report analyzed each property with a focus on the proximity to highways, per-acre cost, topography, and the number of owners. Eventually, the report would rank the East Tohopika Liga property, the Expressway Tract, the Major Realty property, and the University Tract as the top four options in that order. Before compiling the land, though, Disney found itself in the middle of a whirlwind of legal negotiations cloaked in the measure of extreme secrecy, designed to avoid a rash of land speculation. To shepherd the project from land acquisition to legislative approval, Disney relied heavily on the Miami-based law firm of Hellowell, Melrose, and DeWolf. The firm's prominent role in the project resulted from set of peculiar circumstances. Paul Hallowell, the namesake of the Miami firm, received his law degree prior to joining the United States Army during World War II. Eventually, Hallowell was assigned to the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS, the U.S. intelligence agency formed during the war, as a predecessor of the CIA. During Hallowell's tenure in the OSS, the agency was headed by another lawyer, William Donovan. Later, Donovan and Hallowell became close, and Hallowell was eventually tapped to lead the OSS's intelligence operations in Europe. Donovan founded the law firm of Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvine, based in New York. When the time came to hire Florida counsel for the effort, Donovan turned to his former OSS associate, Paul Hallowell. Not surprisingly, especially when one considers the intelligence backgrounds of both Donovan and Hallowell, the Florida efforts soon established policies designed to safeguard the secrecy of the project. For instance, Calls between Disney and the Miami firm would generally be routed through the Donovan firm. This reduced the chance that an errant message or curious employee might make a direct connection between Disney and the land acquisition efforts headed by the Hallowell firm. By June of 1965, Disney had acquired actual title or options for over 27,000 acres of land, comprising roughly 43 square miles. Amazingly, Disney had been able to obtain all of this land for slightly more than $5 million, a figure that worked out to under $200 per acre. Title of the property was held by five Florida corporations, and stock for each was owned by a Disney-controlled Delaware corporation known as Compass East Corporation. Disney established the Florida corporations Reedy Creek Ranch, Inc., Bay Lake Properties, Inc., Tomahawk Properties, Inc., and IA4 Corporation, and Latin American Development Management Corporation in an effort to maintain the secrecy of its involvement during the purchase process. Following two years of land acquisition, the project entered a new phase, the decision-making period where the company would, among other things, select a corporate and governing strategy for this massive new development. The week of June 14, 1965, marked a key event in this process. 
During this week, the expanded group of a key Disney officials convened for a four-day seminar to discuss implementation strategies related to Project Future, the working name at the time for the Disney effort in Florida. Officials at the meeting estimated the overall investment for infrastructure and facilities would exceed $100 million. One major issue related to the importance of Florida counties, as this level of government controlled many tax structures. During the seminar, Disney officials considered how Orange and Osceola counties would assess and tax the property during its development stages. In particular, the group was keen on having the large undeveloped portions of the property classified as agricultural as opposed to having the entire property taxed at the higher commercial rates. The effect of this classification was the counties would refrain from assessing taxes based on the prospective value of the property as a resort. Attorney Hallowell also discussed how Florida law treated land as unimproved for tax purposes until it reached 75% completion as of January 1st of a given year. He suggested that county tax authorities would not tax an improvement until the improvement was actually used, an important possibility for a phased project like this one where a single improvement might be completed but not operational for as long as one year. To increase the likelihood of these results, Hallowell floated an idea of seeking the Attorney General opinion on the issues as such opinions carried significant weight in Florida at the time. Other legal and regulatory issues arose during the seminar. Protection of the Disney trademark within Florida, the possibility of an involuntary annexation of the project by the city of Orlando or another city, the liability and tax benefits of establishing Disney's own drainage district, the ability of local planning and zoning ordinances to the site, and the issue of whether the waterways within the property would be classified as navigable for control purposes. In addition, during the seminar, Walt Disney expressed concerns that the lack of permanent residence in Orlando would make operating a Florida resort much different than in Disneyland, which had its large Los Angeles local population center. Even more significant was Walt Disney's strong emphasis on the importance of controlling the area so that it does not become the jungle of signs, lights, and fly-by-night operations that have fed on Disneyland's audience. The theme of control would serve as one of the leading factors in the most decision-making related to the project. It was during this meeting that Hallowell would make one of the earliest suggestions that Disney should create its own municipality for the project so that it can control its own destiny. However, Disney officials expressed some concern that creating a city would force the company to cede authority to the newly created municipality. In response, Hallowell explained that Disney could form the municipality using a special act approved by the state legislature a strategy that would give the company much more control over the municipality's operating charter. Thus, Disney could craft specific regulations for its own unique circumstances. Considering all of these factors, the municipality idea appeared to gain support among the members of the group. In particular, the increased amount of control resonated with them, so much so that it was noted that if a municipality is not formed, the controls which would otherwise be granted to it would be vested in in the county over which we would have no control. While the idea of creating a municipality piqued the group's interest, at least one Disney official suggested that, if established, the city should exclude residential properties as this would dilute the company's influence. Once again, Hallowell offered a possible legal solution, limit voting rights within the municipalities to landowners. This would allow for leased residential units without the company diluting its control via voting rights. To further the strategy, Hallowell pointed to three Florida cases that provided precedent for the approach. Alternatively, meeting participants considered an idea that would establish separate municipalities for the proposed residential areas and their proposed commercial amusement components of the project. This approach would allow the company to include potentially lucrative residential sales as part of the project without giving the prospective residents any control beyond that component. The meeting attendees set December 1966 for the date of completing a proposed charter for the cities. 
The Charter would address the proposed structure for managing the cities as well as the scope of the power granted to them, with land use, taxation, and bonding authority being among the city's chief interests in establishing its own city. Yet while numerous concerns were identified, the Project Future seminar also took a positive tone in many respects. For instance, Hallowell suggested that a project would not need much in the way of a state legislation, a claim that it would eventually prove quite premature, and legislation that it might need would be aided by a, a positive political climate for the project, a prediction that would in turn prove extraordinarily accurate. Meanwhile, Disney's business consultant, Roy Hawkins, explained that Florida State's Development Commission would likely be eager to cooperate in making the proposal a reality, similar to the support that it had recently uh, provided in the Pratt-Whitney General Electric and Aerojet projects in the state. Indeed, Hawkins would go so far as to proclaim that, from a business development perspective, the potential is unlimited for Project Future. The four-day meeting would conclude with the attendees having considered a broad spectrum of other issues, including the creation of an atomic energy facility, banks, an insurance company, and even an airport for the project, to name just a few. Ultimately, the Project Future Seminar set the stage for Disney's next legal and regulatory steps as it continued to refine strategies for retaining control over many aspects of the massive project. Indeed, by the end of the meeting, the official announcement uh, that Disney was coming to Central Florida was just months away. During this time, not only would the company engage in creative and business planning, but it would also consider another novel governance strategy – one whose structure had existed for years but that had never been tried on such a large scale and with such a large scope of authority. In 1965, Florida counties were powerful governing entities because of their taxing authority. Yet Disney officials quickly realized that creating their own county would essentially be impossible. Therefore, the company opted to consider an alternative form of governance. One possibility was to utilize a special district. The special district could represent a win-win for both the company and the counties in which Disney property resided. The company could retain more control over the project governance than if it only created a municipality. Meanwhile, Orange and Osceola counties would avoid the debt involved with installing the massive infrastructure for the project. While the improvement district approach would provide a novel framework for organizing the project, Disney's desire to control the environment competed with the desire to develop the massive land holdings. One major problem area involved residential housing. Walt's original vision for the project included private housing for residents of the Florida Project. By 1971, this vision first began to take shape when Buena Vista Land Company, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Productions, started construction on a 3,800-acre portion of the property that would include private residences such as houses, apartments, and townhouses. In a 1971 interview, Roy Disney explained that the rationale for this effort This gets us into developing, building up for lots. From there, we gradually move into the whole Epcot idea. However, early on, Disney officials realized that private housing within the Florida Project could dilute their control over the overall development. If Disney wanted to maintain quality control, the company would have to find a way to limit the voting power of private residents. This challenge was exacerbated by Avery v. Midland County, a case that was proceeding through the court system at this time, which sharply restricted the ability to limit an individual's right to vote based on external factors such as the amount of land owned. This unanswered question placed Disney in a precarious situation because of the ability to control voting within the district was a key requirement for the company. To do this, Disney intended to limit the ability of the prospective Reedy Creek residents to participate in the governance of the district through voting powers. One method for accomplishing this goal would be to allocate voting power by the land ownership. With Disney as the predominant landowner, the company would be able to control votes related to the district. However, in light of the Avery decision, 
If Disney chose to allow individuals to reside within the districts or its municipalities, doing so could require the company to extend them to voting powers in order to comply with the Equal Protection Clause. While the court would ultimately limit the application of the Avery Holding in the context of certain special districts, Disney had no way of knowing that this would occur, and even so, whether or not the unique structure of the district could avoid judicial scrutiny under the 14th Amendment. However, even with these uncertain issues swirling around this unprecedented project, the company's Florida efforts were about to enter a new phase as a local reporter was prepared to break the big news. The mystery industry entering Central Florida was none other than the Disney Company. Soon after rumors of the Disney's uh, involvement in Central Florida were confirmed, property values in the area increased at a phenomenal rate. Before anything could be built, however, Disney had had to shepherd its regulatory package through the state legislature. Before submitting the legislative package, Disney commenced a small local legal process that would play a disproportionately large role in bringing the project to fruition. On May 13, 1966, the Circuit Court of the Ninth Judicial District created the Reedy Creek Drainage District pursuant to Chapter 298 of the Florida Statutes. This allowed Disney to begin the time-consuming effort of draining and reclaiming as much of the land so the actual site construction would be possible. However, this initial legal victory was tempered by growing legislative problems, none of which were caused by Disney, but each of which could conceivably derailed the project. On December 15, 1966, Walt Disney died, and the impact of his death would stress the creative bearings of the entire project. After all, he had been the strategic and inspirational leader for not just the effort to build another theme park, but to craft the entire city of tomorrow. After an intense period of evaluation, Roy Disney took over the company's decision-making and quickly resolved that the project would go forward. As biographer Bob Thomas recounts, Roy gathered the company's major executives and ins- insisted that the Florida project continue. We're going to finish this park, and we're going to do it just the way Walt wanted it. Don't you ever forget it. I want every one of you to do just exactly what you were going to do when Walt was alive. Meanwhile, the governor signed three pieces of legislation that represented the privatization of many traditional local regulatory responsibilities. Each piece of legislation in its own respect enabled Walt Disney's dream to become reality. You have Chapter 67784, creating the Reedy Creek Improvement District. The legislation creating the actual Reedy Creek Improvement District exceeds a hefty 100 pages in length. However, even more impressive than the length is the scope of the district's authority. In a technical sense, to create the Improvement District, the Florida legislature essentially codified the May 13, 1966 uh, Circuit Court decree that established the Reedy Creek Drainage District and then expanded the scope of the district's authority. Section 9 of the legislation sets forth the various powers of the district, a wide-ranging grant of authority that included a typical task such as the right to, uh, to own property and maintain a corporate seal, and expansive powers such as extra, extraterritorial eminent domain. Other powers granted to the district included many that were typically held by municipalities, land reclamation, water and flood control, waste collection and disposal, pest control, fire protection, issuance of bonds, land use, and building regulations. In several cases, the legislation empowered the district to engage in less typical acts, such as operating an airport and a heliport, for both passengers and freight service. On October 17, 1971, the resort debuted one of the country's first short takeoff and landing airstrips, known as Stoll Port, for short takeoff and landing. During its operation, two airlines, Shawnee and an Executive, operated passenger flights from the main airports in Orlando and Tampa directly to Disney World on a small passenger turboprop planes. The resort also maintained an ultralight flight park near Epcot Center for private purposes. While these landing strips were eventually abandoned, at least one helipad remains in the non-public area of Epcot near the Living Seas Pavilion, a continuing legacy of the original 1967 legislation. 
One of the recurrent themes within this legislation was to grant the district broad powers for the experimental technologies. For instance, when the legislature provided the district with the authority to operate transportation systems, the statutory language contemplated systems whether now or hereafter invented or developed, including without limitation, novel and experimental facilities. Similarly, the legislation authorized the district to operate new and experimental public utilities and new and experimental sources of power and energy. In fact, the goal of enabling the district to govern outside of conventional norms was further demonstrated by a separate section within the legislation directly on the point in order to promote and development of the utilization of new concepts, designs, and ideas in the fields of recreation and community living, the district shall have the power and authority to examine into, develop, and utilize new concepts, designs, and ideas, and to own, acquire, construct, reconstruct, equip, operate, maintain, extend, and improve such experimental public facilities and services as the board may from time to time to determine. The second was the legislation creating the city of Reedy Creek and the city of Bay Lake. In addition to establishing the Reedy Creek Super District, Disney also received legislative approval for two new municipalities within the district. They are the city of Bay Lake and the city of Reedy Creek. A review of the legislation reveals that a grant of somewhat typical municipal powers. What is atypical, however, is the fact that Disney essentially controlled the governance of both cities by limiting their populations to small groups of Disney employees and their families. Essentially, the cities operated much like the district as a regulatory tool for governing the Florida project. Indeed, many of the powers held by the district were concurrently held by two municipalities. However, there were several interesting exceptions to the general rule, with the cities possessing some powers that the district did not. These included authority to issue business and professional licenses as well as collect related fees, authority to build and maintain health care facilities, including hospitals and health care research facilities, authority to provide police services, authority to regulate the manufacturing and sale of alcohol, and the authority to establish and operate a municipal court, including an appointment of a municipal judge and city prosecutor. By November of 1968, the project had encountered the threshold legal challenge of whether the Florida Supreme Court would uphold the constitutionality of the unique privatization of governance. The case, State versus the Reedy Creek Improvement District, centered on the propriety of allowing the district to issue drainage bonds as part of the overall project development. The bond revenue would be used to drain and reclaim submerged lands within the district, and the bond maturity dates ranged from 1970 to 2004. The matter represented a somewhat odd procedural situation, as the state, which had previously created the district through its 1967 legislation, was challenging the very scope of the authority that it had granted to the district. The exercise was an important one, though, because it provided an opportunity for all parties to essentially test the legality of the district's unique structure within the Florida courts. Indeed, according to DeWolf, the lawsuit did not represent an effort by the state to overturn the legislature's creation. Rather, it was a vehicle by which Disney could bring legal finality to whether the district should remain. Ultimately, the Florida Supreme Court upheld not only the trial court's validation of the drainage bonds, but also the very structure of the district itself. The legality of Disney's expansive multipurpose special district was now official. Roy Disney in 1970 was quoted as saying, The big difference between Disney World and Disneyland in California is that this is a real estate venture for us. The amusement park is just a catalyst that will draw other investments here. Disney could have created an amusement parks and innovative mixed-use development without resorting to court-approved drainage districts and newly enabled cities and improved districts, but it chose not to do so. This leads to an important question. Why opt for such a complex and novel approach toward developing the Florida project when other large private developments, including Disneyland, succeeded without such unique regulatory framework? 
The answer is multifaceted and complex, but it clearly centers on the issue of legal control over the physical and regulatory environment that would shape the massive project. Unfortunately, the term control, especially in land development context, can cause a visceral reaction centered at the idea of big brother-like entity wildly exercising suppressive powers. And even in cases with a less of reaction, the idea of assigning governing powers to a private entity may give some pause. Increased private control over governance is not in itself an inherent danger. Rather, it is the granting of that control to a potentially abusive entity that can result in problems. In the case of Disney in the 1960s, the Florida legislature had little reason to question the motives of the company's request. In fact, Disney's reasoning for the request demonstrated otherwise. It sought private powers not to govern and enforce its will on landowners, but instead to strictly limit this governance to its own land holdings. For instance, when it developed Disneyland, the company failed to acquire much of the surrounding land. The result was that as the project became more popular, a slew of cheap motels and shops built up around the theme park. This created a visual blight, which was an especially troubling problem for Disney, because Disney invested so much in the appearance of Disneyland. Therefore, it was hardly surprising that Disney feared a similar result in Florida if the project was developed without the buffer Disneyland lacked. Indeed, this fear would turn out to be well-founded as the Disney Florida project would soon be surrounded by less immersive commercial developments as motels, hotels, and other retail establishments raced against the clock to acquire land and build. The difference in Florida was that the company had enough buffer land to keep these businesses away from the project. While the buffer alone might have been sufficient to keep away undesirable businesses, it alone did not empower Disney to make final development decisions related to the property. Were Disney to have proceeded under the existing structures of governance, those decisions would have remained in the hands of the county commissioners, building departments, fire chiefs, and other regulators. The net effects of this would have been to saddle Disney's progressive visions with new building techniques, water management, and land use with the decidedly conventional regulations of what were at the time relatively underdeveloped counties in central Florida. The improvement district format furthered Disney's efforts to maintain control over many governance aspects of the project. However, the appropriateness of this approach is obviously not measured by merely how it benefits the private corporation since it acquired many of the regulatory powers that the counties would have otherwise um, maintained. A complete analysis of the Reedy Creek Improvement District also requires consideration of how the district affected state and local interests. The Florida legislature decision to create the district demonstrated a willingness to engage in novel regulatory strategies in order to secure the Disney project. In 1965, the East Central Florida Regional Planning Council, which included both Orange and Osceola counties, produced a detailed report on the regional economy and development. The report outlined some seemingly incongruous results, for instance, while it touted that between 1950 and 1963, the region's economy underwent one of the most rapid and drastic changes ever to take place in the U.S. region in peacetime. The report also noted that the region contributed significantly to Florida's overall nation-leading mortgage defaults. The fact that the Council offered its analysis for this robustly conflicted economy in May 1965 is interesting in that, though little known to the Council, one of the largest economic forces ever to shape the region was just months from being officially announced. Indeed, the November 1965 announcement of Disney's Florida project would add a significant new variable to the area's economy and development. To help quantify this variable, a Disney commission study from the ERA in January 1967, focused on the prospective economic impact that the Disney project would generate for the state in Central Florida. The report concluded that, from the start of construction to the first decade of operation, the project would generate more than $6.6 billion in new wealth. According to the ERA report, in 1965, only 8% of all activities which visitors look forward to on a trip in Florida consisted of commercial attractions. 
This low number likely resulted from the state's primary attraction as, as a destination for the beach vacationers. Adding a non-beach tourist option to Disney's magnitude would provide a compelling reason to visit Florida for those vacationers not interested in a beach trip. The extension of these benefits to the local communities and the state as a whole was seconded by those such as the East Central Florida Regional Planning Council, which subsequently predicted that because of the project, there would be an additional $500 million investment in tourist-related activities outside of Walt Disney World by 1980, and a need for 27,000 more hotels and motel rooms and 70,000 new jobs. We see all this investment transforming tourism in Florida. Moreover, the announcement of the project increased area land values by more than 30%. Even before construction was completed, all of Disney World's convention dates for 1972, the first year that on-property conventions would start in earnest, were booked in advance, which was yet another indication that ERA's prediction of Disney's economic success was well-supported. Indeed, by 1972, Disney World's first full year of operation, the area's unemployment rate was 2% lower than the national average, and the area's tax receipts, construction projects, and bank deposits had reached all-time highs. Clearly, the massive Disney project was bearing fruit on the region. The early positive effects... the early positive effects of the project would be revisited a decade later. In another economic impact study, in particular, the Orlando-located Rollins College produced a 1983 study entitled The Disney World Effect, which used statistical data to analyze the impact of the resort on the state of Florida. The report used government statistics to reach several important conclusions related to the time period from 1970 to 1980, roughly the first decade of Disney World's operation. Ultimately, the study concluded the following... The development of the Disney World has served as a learning aid for the Central Florida area, illustrating how radically the establishment of one industry can change an area's growth, and also how important effective community planning is. The area has succeeded in dealing with rapid changes and thus served with Disney World to enhance Florida's attractiveness as a vacation destination for tourists while maintaining the quality of living in the growing number of Florida residents. The aforementioned transportation problem highlighted just the opposite. However, those negative effects continue to be outweighed by the positive effects as the project wrapped up its first decade of operation. Nearly 20 years later, another economic impact study concluded the state and region were still realizing positive impacts from the unique Disney World and Reedy Creek structures. In 2004, a study by Dr. Hank Fishkind and Associates concluded that the Reedy Creek and Resort continued to generate a positive economic results The report included a finding that the company's annual $5.1 billion gross fiscal output in Central Florida equaled more than 8% of the region's total output. The result was that over the course of three decades, Disney World continued to provide direct and indirect benefits to the local and state economies in a proportion that easily outweighed its negative impacts. Beyond the specific studies and reports, the Reedy Creek project has also benefited the Orlando metropolitan area in other ways. Indeed, as early as 1970, Disney World spawned a need for businesses and financial services in Greater Orlando. This included large new bank branches, financial service institutions, and and insurance interests, such as a 19-story building for CNA Financial Corporation and a $4.5 million headquarters for the Hartford Insurance Group. These benefits derived from the creation of the district were not limited to only financial matters, though. One complaint about Reedy Creek is that the approach to development harmed the environment, Most of the criticism centers on Disney World's effect on the existing ecosystem, and particular concern is directed toward Disney's treatment of wetlands. An independent case study concluded that the environmental management systems for Disney World and Reedy Creek were effectively managed and operated. Indeed, both facilities earned awards for extensive environmental accomplishments in a wide range of areas, including natural resource management, pest control, water and energy conservation, and recycling. 
Moreover, multiple Disney hotels within the district also received the Florida Department of Environmental Protection's Green Logic Certification, a voluntary state uh, program designed to encourage hotels and motels to adopt a cross-saving green practices that reduced waste and conserve natural resources. Despite the unique structure of Reedy Creek, Disney World continues to comply with, if not exceed, the environmental practices. This is a strong indication that the public-private dichotomy at work in the district has not led to standards lower than if Disney were regulated under a more traditional form of governance. This may be due to extensive federal, regional, and state government environmental regulations from authorities such as the Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and the South Florida Water Management District. In the mid-1960s, uh, Disney entered into a U.S. Geological Survey cooperative program designed to monitor the quantity and quality of surface and groundwater in the in and adjacent to the district as an aid in continuing management of the district's water resources, and in evaluating the effects of the urban activities on the hydrologic systems. The effect is the environmental practices within the district have historically been regulated by a wide variety of state and federal agencies, in addition to the internal district regulations. Moreover, as early as 1971, the National Wildlife Federation recognized that the, the Reedy Creek Project contains many innovations designed to solve a host of current environmental problems. These include 17 dams and an extensive dike system to protect the project's conservation area, a compressed air trash removal system that delivered trash to a central management area, a stormwater and waste system that developed in conjunction with the University of Florida, experts designed to render sewage harmless and even profitable, power generation techniques designed to reduce thermal pollution, and alternative pest control methods designed to limit the use of certain chemicals. These efforts led the group to conclude that Walt Disney's successors have done just about everything that time, talent, goodwill, and money can, can provide to nurture the high hopes of their late boss had for Walt Disney World. Of course, this is not to say that the environmental concerns were non-existent. Indeed, at the time, several specific concerns included increases in traffic, loss of plant life, and negative impacts upon the citrus groves and the water supply. However, while the development has certainly affected the area, if for no other reason than due to its sheer size, the resulting impact has not generated the negative impacts predicted by some. This is especially true when one considers that the most realized problem, increased traffic congestion, may have been affected by the Florida project, but was also in part attributed to the interstate, turnpike, and other road construction planned before the project. The planned road network is one of the reasons the company selected the site. Those who proposed that Florida erred in creating the Reedy Creek Improvement District because of the negative environmental impacts lack a persuasive body of facts to support this argument. Moreover, the proposition ignores that the reality of the Reedy Creek remains regulated by the state, regional, and federal environmental agencies. Thus, to whatever extent the Reedy Creek format privatized some local legislative functions, those functions did not include environmental oversight. One final note remains that the pertinent to this discussion. Had the Florida legislature believed that the district was not governing in an effective manner, it could have repealed the district's authority at any time and reassigned it to the existing public governance entities like Orange and Osceola counties. Indeed, in several instances, the state legislature chose to do the exact opposite, that is, to specifically exempt the district from additional governance. For example, when the state legislature passed a law that provided that each independent special district shall submit to each local general purpose government in which it is located a public facilities report and an annual notice of any changes, it specifically excluded the district from the requirement. Similarly, when the state legislature passed a law requiring local governments to prepare comprehensive plans for future growth and development, 
Rather than give Orange and Osceola counties authority over the property within the district, the legislature assigned this responsibility directly to the district for, for total area under its jurisdiction. Little known to the millions of guests who visit the Walt Disney World Resort each year, the Reedy Creek Improvement District is the engine that has driven this wildly successful project from an idea in Walt Disney's mind to one of the world's largest development projects. In the process, novel ideas, legal, engineering, legislative, and many others enabled an effort for this scope to develop. Naturally, innovation, which by its very nature invokes the unknown, generated questions and concerns among those who had come to rely on a well-established framework. Yet those questions have, by and large, have been based on concerns not founded on the quantitative problems, but rather speculative anxiety. Indeed, more than providing a regulatory framework for the theme park resort, the Reedy Creek Improvement District has demonstrated the unique allocations of public and private governance that, that can promote visionary efforts. This is the lesson and the story of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this look back into the Reedy Creek Improvement District and how it came to be and what it means for the Walt Disney World Resort. Once again, if you're interested in reading the entire text of this article, it is from the Florida State Law Review, and I am putting a link to that in my show notes page over at DisneyWorldPodcast.net. If anyone has any questions or thoughts about this, please feel free to contact me directly at DavesDisneyView at gmail.com. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app.